I guess you could say that ships operating close to shore could be taken literally. This is the Veteran Wargamer. This is the Veteran Wargamer. I am your host, Jay Arnold. Welcome to episode 76. I am joined today by Sebastian Bay. He is a research analyst and war game designer at the Center for Naval Analysis. Sebastian, how are you doing? It's great to be here. So I'm going to ask you the same question I ask all my guests the first time they're on, and that is, what makes you a veteran war gamer? So I guess you can call me a veteran wargamer because I love games like many uh, of your listeners, and I've played games almost my entire life. Um, commercial games as a hobby gamer, but also professional games as a designer and participant uh, and playtester for many regards. So for my day job, I work for the Center for Naval Analysis, also known as CNA. I am part of the Gaming and Integration Program, which is uh, a, team, a subdivision of the Operations Division where we are dedicated to designing, uh, developing, and researching games in support of professional education or professional analysis, uh, predominantly for the U.S. Navy and Marine Corps. With that said, I will say that I'm here on the podcast in a personal capacity, and none of my views reflect my sponsors nor uh, my uh, employer at CNA. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've had some official folks on before, and it definitely goes without saying that, well, I, I'm, you know, a member of the National Guard myself, so my my views do not reflect the Illinois Army National Guard or any of the folks above me. But anyway, um, now I'm going to take a stab in the dark and say that um, I'm guessing you're probably around my age, give or take. Um, what were some of the... Uh, what were some of the hot first hobby games you got into? Uh, I think my first hobby game was probably, I think, Candyland. I was over at a friend's house, and like he had this game, and he's like, let's play Candyland. I think his like younger sister had it, and I remember playing it as a, as like a wee, wee kid. Uh, but I think the first like games that I first really fell in love with, you know, probably in middle school, was like Risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, Access and Allies was like, a staple. Um, right. I remember my friends and I like setting it up and like commandeering one of our, our family's like dining room tables, like because you have to play over like several days and sessions. Oh, yeah. And I remember his uh, his mother would be like, "You need to finish this game. Someone needs to win the war because we have dinner and we have mm-hmm. not eaten dinner on this <laughs> table for like days." Um, and it's just one of those. And it's funny because even when I went to grad school, uh, my roommate and I, Scott he and I would play Axis and Allies over days and we would not eat at our dining room table. We were like, we must keep the war going. Yeah. Uh, so like, I guess that's one of my most, you know I mean? Early predominant memories of playing board games was probably Axis and Allies. Um, and then, you know I mean? I grew up on some of the MMP and uh, Avalon Hill games. Um, but, you know I mean? I was really able to dive back into gaming when I started designing games professionally uh probably nearing seven or six years ago now uh for the dod in various capacities uh at ran previously and then for the marine corps before that so i was able to sort of you know play games for my job right uh to do um 
research in terms of seeing what were the new Euro games that were out. I remember opening Scythe for the first time and playing it um, and deeply regretting not getting the Kickstarter. Um, and then there are other games I always learn from, and I always try to learn both games, game design things from both Euro games and crunchy sort of tr- uh, hex encounter games, which are where my origins lie. But you know, I try to find as much you know, information as possible. Yeah, I, it's, and it's one of those things where, um, yeah, I, I am with you as far as using games as training tools uh, for our for our military, and not necessarily as one would expect, right? Um, and we'll we'll delve into that a little bit deeper. Um, now, anyone who's followed your Twitter and it's just at Sebastian Bay, and I'll have a link in the show notes, of course. Uh, you of course talk at length about your literal literal commander, and uh, it used to be named something else, and then somebody made you change it. But we won't <laughs> we won't go into that. Um, there is not quite a Kickstarter, but there is a. Uh, I guess you've got a pledge drive, you could call it, with the Deets Foundation. And again, a link will be in the show notes for anyone who wants to back Literal Commander, the Indo-Pacific. Uh, you have met your your funding goal. And for, I, I guess at this point, it's just gravy, right? Yeah, so the Littoral Commander game series that I'm working on is an adaptation of a PME game that I designed for fun um, uh, for the Marine Corps. Um, and now it's sort of being commercialized for a wider use, but also hopefully my hope is that it will get um, a commercial version will allow it to have more mass reach for PME and professional military education. And especially my personal passion is to get gaming done at the unit level, right? Whether it's down at the company or battalion level, or even at the staff level to get uh, more Marines and more servicemen at the gaming table learning, um, being able to uh, have iterative learning to engage with their peers and their superiors and build institutional knowledge uh, about a particular topic, whether that is the future warfare, which littoral commander sort of addresses, or you're in, sort of igniting a passion for board games in terms of as a learning tool. And hopefully they will look at other historical games or other future games. And hopefully it's just another sort of gateway, right, for more learning. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and just by way of example, what are some of the what are some of the games off the shelf games that you've used? And I, I guess if you could kind of not only what, what games have you used in the past, but what were your training objectives with, with some of those particular games? So that's a great question. So in terms of using games as educational tools, I broadly bin them into you know I mean sort of three categories, which is uh, how I approach games and learning, which is crawl, walk, run, right? Mm-hmm. There are the crawl games, which are gateway games, games that have lots of accessibility. They're easy to play, easy to learn, but they still have some educational value or some historical, you know what I mean, uh, theme that you're trying to hit on, but they might not hit all the notes perfectly, right? So a great example of that is a game that I wish I designed, which is a game called Frederick about the Seven Years' War. Um, it is a fantastic game. The rules essentially fit on a card uh, the size of a poker card it is super simple has a really beautiful elegant logistics trace mechanic um, and has a cool game map where it uses a node system but also zones and cards for adjudication so there's no dice rolling especially for those who 
uh, know that some military officers really you know, are against right uh, dice rolling. So it's a great, easy card adjudication game where a lot of input randomness, right? So there's a sense of control and uh, in agency, but still a sense of uh, randomness and choice and trade-offs. So it's a great game. I run it for everyone from lieutenants and enlisted folks to, um, for education, but also for colonels. I've done it for colonels as part of uh, entry to historical gaming and using games as tools um, for learning. So that's sort of like the crawl category. It's sort of the other categories are uh, sort of in the middle that have um, some kind of crunch to it, but they're still pretty accessible. Like uh, Race to the Rhine is another great logistics game building on the logistics theme here um, that has a little bit more rules, a little more gaminess uh, to it, but you can pair it with lots of interesting elements about historical readings and so forth. And then you can you know, bring a, a more advanced game, let's say the Marine Corps uh, OWS system, which is operational war game system that has a, a wide sweeping look at future operational warfare, or even let's say the OC, uh, OCS series for uh, by MMP is a great series to look at a lot of operational decisions historically. So, you know what I mean? I like to build up my players towards difficulty and playability. Also, the pedagogical approach is that they will learn more and more about game mechanics and game systems. So they're thinking less about those things when they're playing and more about the content, about the history, about their strategy, about their tactics, about the gameplay, about their own learning. And sort of that's sort of my approach personally. Okay. All right. I, I've had some, I've had some good luck uh, as an OCS instructor with games. Uh, the first, the first one I've run or first one I ran for my candidates was uh, space cadets dice duel. Cause one, you know, first off it's a, it's a team game, right? You've got uh, two teams, each playing as the bridge crew for a spacecraft. And the wild things they have to do, you know, on the fly, because there is no turn sequence, you know, it's, it's live as you go. And one of my, well, one of my kind of more subtle objectives was teaching them that training doesn't have to be, you know, okay, we're going to look in a manual and we're going to repeat the steps that are, you know, <laughs> dictated in this manual. You know, I wanted them to see that you can, you can conduct training with a, with a commercially available board game. And then, uh, you know, just kind of went into further detail about how difficult it is to, you know, continually reassess the situation on the board, you know, you know, as the captain, right? Uh, and then continuously get what you need from basically your staff sections as the situation changes. And you may need to reassess, you know, what, you know, do you, you know, do you, commit resources to maneuver or do you commit resources to uh, to firepower or do you commit resources to protection? And um, it was a really neat, it was a really neat experience. And, and some of my former uh, candidates who were in that class, they, they've said that that was one of the best experiences they had in OCS. Um, I've also run Creek, you know, like, like a classic 1824 Kriegspiel with candidates before. And, uh, again, the, the objective, well, one of the objectives was getting them to see that, you know, you can use games as training, but on that one, I was just trying to illustrate some of the difficulties that civil war era commanders had because I was I basically replicated a, a more generic red versus blue civil war 
And uh, in that same class, uh, we took a staff ride to Gettysburg and the good folks at Little Wars TV uh, set up a Gettysburg game for us at the hotel using their uh, miniatures rules, uh, Altar of Freedom. And that, again, you know, showing them, hey, you you know, training can take place even after hours and it, and it can be fun. And also got the, the spectacle of, of, uh, of a miniatures war game out of it as well. Uh, and it's definitely something I want to continue doing now that I'm back in a line unit. And uh, that, that's going to be a little bit more of a challenge because I don't necessarily have a captive audience for that. You know, I, I am a first sergeant, but it's not like, I can order people to play games, right? I mean, I could build it into the training schedule. I guess I'll have to build it into the training schedule as, uh, like you said, PME, professional military education. But yeah, I, actually, I'm just... So actually, that's an interesting question is like, can't you just order them to do it? Like I was a sergeant when I was in, so I had like almost no power. I had power of like 12 people. But you know what I mean? As a first sergeant, you can just like order them to show up, can't you? <laughs> that's why I always assumed my first sergeant did because that's what he did. <laughs> right. No, I, I suppose I could, but um, I'll, I'll have to get some folks over over to my, my way of thinking. But it, it, I'm I'm trying not to use the sticks so much. I'm trying to be more of the carrot driven leadership, right? <laughs> so uh, I, I totally get that. So one little wars TVs, their games are great. I uh, played one of their games on Vietnam at uh, last year at Historicon. It was super fun. They're great folks. They do a great job. Mm-hmm. So you're a huge process to them um, in terms of game design or using games for education, I am always reminded of the Mike Tyson quote that everyone has a plan until you get punched in the mouth, right? And I think that's a perfect reflection of what games do, right? You may have this perfect paper, uh, perfect, uh, perfect plan on paper that you, you have all the blue arrows going right where the red arrows are and you have the whole concept uh, sort of laid out in terms of doctrine. But what happens when the enemy punches you in the face, right? What will you do? How will you adapt? Uh, it is about that interaction, that dynamic uh, engagement with an adversary with an adaptive mind and a will that he, is, he or she is trying to impose on you. I think that's really the difference, right, about that sort of experiential learning uh, that is powerful. And you're know, circling back to like ordering you know, the, uh, with the stick versus the carrot. I think there's a little value for both, right? Um, in the sense that sometimes you need to start with the stick and then end with the carrot. Because I think in my experience, as soon as you get people at the table, right? Uh, engage with a problem, engage with a game, they will want to stay, right? It's really just you know, having them uh, spend time and invest in something they don't know yet. Uh, in terms of their value trade-off, right? But what will this offer me as a you know, I mean, sergeant or as a lieutenant leading a platoon? And then if you give them that value proposition, it will usually make sense. And if not, you at least figure out which ones that will st- stick around uh, for the long term anyway, out of their own free will. Yeah. And, and you know, I, my, my limitations notwithstanding, you know, I, I get two days a year or two days a month. Right. And we, we have to, we have to be pretty, pretty stingy with our time sometimes, but yeah, I, 
I think in my particular case, I, what I might start out doing is just kind of have a like an optional thing after we release on Friday or not Friday or Saturday evening, I should say. And I'm usually getting to the drill hall Friday night anyway, but uh, maybe like an optional Saturday night, Saturday night thing to start and then maybe grow it from there. But uh, no, I, I definitely believe that there is room and I, and I like your approach of where you do a crawl walk run where um, you kind of go for a low, low overhead, I guess you could call it uh, game experience. Um, something with not a lot of rules or very into it. Uh, intuitive rules, I guess you could say also. Um, just thinking of some different titles that someone could use for something like that. Um, if you've got the time, of course, I don't think there's there's many games with simpler rules for the player anyway than Diplomacy, for example. Um, and, you know, you can you can play that without really knowing the rules as long as you have a good adjudicator who's who's got a tight rein on the rules. Uh, the only thing is I want my squad leaders and platoon sergeants to talk to each other afterwards, right? Yeah, so I love Diplomacy. Diplomacy is a great game. I'm actually running a session of it next week for another Georgetown uh, instructor first class, and they're uh, on class on game theory and uh, international relations. Oh, I'm yeah. like, oh, diplomacy is going to be amazing. Uh, so I'm really excited about that. I'm, I think, you know, I mean, that's a great choice. And in terms of the crawl, walk, run approach, I always choose like a, a stable of gateway games, right? That games that sort of, I call them Trojan, Trojan horse games that trick them into not realizing they're learning something. So with my uh, design students at Georgetown, uh, when I'm teaching them game design, one of the first early games I teach them is either Frederick, Battle for Moscow, which is an old victory point game. We use the online version, which allows a lot of solitaire play. Uh, another version, uh, another game that we play is Game of Thrones Risk. Uh, and a lot of my like crunchy, like Gronard like colleagues are like, why would you use that game? I'm like, because it is easy. Like everyone has played Risk in their lives at least once, right? It's a really accessible game. But more than anything, I love Game of Thrones Risk because it wraps it in a story and a narrative and a world that they're my students around this age that are young 20s and 19-year-olds, like they're already invested in. They've grown watching Game of Thrones or reading the books. So they're already interested, right? And then yeah. often sometimes I will pair it with you, – you remember all those articles about like uh, like that would uh, – examine game of thrones strategy and like war tactics right and i would be like hey just read these right and we're going to play this game it'll be fun and engagement and we'll order pizza and we'll play for like you know, three or four hours and every time i guarantee you every time i run it it has run over by double the time because they don't want to leave right um and that's the sort of the hook right so i get them into it we'll play game of thrones risk it'll be fun and then i'll bring something like race to the rhine or let's say like any other game, uh, let's say Access and Allies, Guadalcanal, or other games that sort of build on other mechanics and other ideas. And the idea is that one day they can get to games like MMPs Angola, right? So they can understand all those elements and sort of crawl, walk, run approach. Yeah, I, I definitely like that. I like that idea um, because, I mean, that's, I'm not sure how the Navy and the Marine Corps set up their training. I, I would imagine similar to the Army, but that that is, driven into us as trainers as you do a crawl walk run for everything right so yeah that makes perfect sense that you would do that 
in with this type of training tool as well. So, um, yeah. So my one other advice for people like yourself and others who may be listening, who are interested in cultivating wargaming at the tactical level, one of the hardest and persistent problems is institutional knowledge, right? Is that let's say you are able to get lots of wargaming happening at your unit. And, um, and what happens if you move? What happens if you get promoted and you're no longer in that position where you were uh, in charge of the PME gaming? The sort of other little adage I recommend to people is to think about the med school sort of like adage of um, see one, do one, teach one. And you should have it the same way for gaming, uh, especially for PME purposes, where you are having them see a game run, right? Because you are running the game for them, and then you have them play the game or run a game themselves, and then next step is for them to teach it. So you build institutional knowledge that it is no longer a failure of one. What happens and what if so so they can run games even if Jay Arnold is not there for that drill weekend, right? Mm -hmm. So they can find Sir, Sergeant so and so can run it as well because he has seen and played diplomacy with you and now has been also been given the chance where he is running uh, diplomacy for you while you're sort of sitting back in a backseat approach, right? It's the same way, right? See one, do one, teach one. And that's how, and I, I tried to do the same thing with uh, the Georgetown Wargaming Society at Goose, where I tried to have the students you know, do the same thing. I will teach them a game. I will I'll run a game with them. And then eventually they will run a game while I'm supporting them. And eventually I will have task them with teaching another student or another graduate student um, the same game. So they, after they graduate or leave, they, that sort of game still is able to continue on in our sort of cycle. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a great idea also. And uh, yeah, I, I like that using, you know, you're, you're basically teaching people to, you know, carry the torch forward. And that makes, that makes a heck of a lot of sense. That's, you know, what we're supposed to be doing anyway. Right. Is, is teaching so we're people told. To, yeah, <laughs> teaching people to teach the next generation, right, or the next the next folks coming up. Oh, so, um, so in your in your journey of uh, designing and running war games for professional military education, at some point you developed Fleet Marine Force. That was that what Fleet Marine Force was that the name of it, right? Original name? Yeah, so it was originally called Fleet Marine Force or FMF. Then we had to change it, and it's now called Littoral Commander. Mm -hmm. Now, where did that come from? Where Where did the what was the impetus for the for designing it, and how how was how'd your process work? So the original impetus was actually the pandemic. So you're in, in was it now 2020, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. When the pandemic sort of struck in the early spring. While time has lost all meaning, um, I sort of had this project that I always wanted to do was create a game about the future uh, littoral amphibious environment for Marines. This was at the time where the Commandant at the time was looking at Force Design 2030 and how to pivot the Marine Corps to a, its sort of naval and maritime and amphibious roots and sort of pivot to the Indo-Pacific again. And the big question of what kind of Marine Corps do we need? And there are a lot of discussions and questions professionally that we're engaged in, but also personally really invested in. Um, and I wanted to create a game that Marines and uh, whether officers or enlisted could engage with those ideas, not with the notion that 
the game will provide a singular future where it says, hey, this is answer A and answer A is right, but uh, sort of treat it as an intellectual sandbox where Marines could explore different technologies. How does, let's say, hypersonics affect littoral uh, warfare? How can ground forces engage with maritime ships, right? How does uh, integrated air defense affect how you persist or survive in in a contested environment? How does cyber play at the tactical Mm -hmm. level, at the section and platoon and company level? And these are all questions I wanted the game to really sort of explore. And the game is fundamentally about what we call in military jargon, the sensor to shooter chain, right? How do I see a target? How do I uh, track a target? How do I prosecute a target with a weapons platform? And you know what I mean, and sort of around and around again. But also at the same time, it asks the question of when do I reveal my position to do an action, whether that's firing in defense of uh, myself using uh, integrated air defense, IADs, or to fire at an enemy of opportunity or an enemy of uh, of a purpose where I find someone I want to prosecute, let's say a Chinese ship, like a Renhei cruiser slash destroyer. Mm-hmm. And those are all choices that I wanted the players to really think about. How do I track the enemy? How do I prosecute that enemy? But also how do I keep the enemy from observing me? Right. And what are the trace spaces between those three questions? And that's really what the Toro Commander really addresses at its core about fulfilling that sensor to shooter train in various ways. Like, for example, do I reveal a, a Chinese ship through cyber means? Do I reveal it through a drone? Uh, do I reveal it through uh, uh, F-35 uh, going to observe it? Right. What And what are the trade-offs? What are the risks uh, associated with each of these platforms? Uh, and how do I mitigate or anticipate my enemy's uh, own courses of action, and how will his actions affect mine, right? So these are really the simple questions that really evolved into the game design. Uh, In terms of the game design, I sort of approach the way I approach all my games, which is do a lot of research, which means a lot of reading, a lot of listening to people who are smarter and more informed than you, and then trying to synthesize and digest that information to build what I call a design schema, right? Which is what, how does the thing that I'm trying to model in my game, whether that be, you know what I mean? submarine operations or the sensors to shooter chain or ISR or uh, which is your intelligence reconnaissance and surveillance, how does that work? Right. And you sort of build this mental model. I often build like process charts. So think a bunch of, a bunch of draw, uh, drawings on a whiteboard saying that this connects to this and this is how this arrow means and connects to other things. And I sort of build this whole process chart out uh, for how the sensor to shooter chain works. And then I start, you know, filling the game um, by adding mechanics to each of those sort of links. Like for example, one of the, a simple example uh, I use for, to teach my class based on littoral commander is like, let's say I uh, I use a, a drone like a predator or like a class five drone that flies high, sees a ship. That information is transferred to um, a, sec- uh, uh, a section of launchers, right, like high Mars, and they get that information and they launch a. a, a uh, let's say a naval strike missile or let's say a gimlers at the ship and prosecutes that sort of chain right and but how do you do, represent those sort of links in a game mechanic right so in my game littoral commander many of the isr links are driven by cards so i play a card that represents that drone it will let me try to look into a hex which your ship may be right and to reveal it to flip it over so i can see it and target it uh, because only 
revealed units can be targeted in my game. Um, so, but at the same time, the ship can shoot down my drone with IADs, right? But that also reveals it. But it can pretend. Uh, but if it's with a formation of ships or other, you know, what I mean, units, it, it it is saving the rest of the ship at the cost of revealing its own singular position, right? And the other question becomes: Okay, well, now I see this ship, right? Then maybe I will shoot at this ship that has revealed to defend the rest of the fleet. And so you can see the sort of these chain reactions that happen. Um, and in terms of the combat mechanic, it is really a bucket of dice sort of mechanic where uh, you have a number of supply that represents supply, uh, salvos. So like each dice in, in the game represents about four to six missiles or munitions of various types. Um, and then you're trying to hit a target and trying to get past on your integrated air defense, which is trying to intercept those things as well. So they sort of negate each other. Uh, and there, you know, the game is really surprisingly a card-driven game. So there's a simple like hex and counter element to it, but also the cards add a lot of texture and um, different domains that you have to consider. Like, for example, like we have everything from cyber cards to you're in low or earth orbit uh, satellites. We have you know, unmanned underwater vehicles, UUVs that can do ISR for you or even do swarming attacks, right? And the really idea is like the cards were designed as what if you had this capability, right? Or also at the same time for existing capabilities to serve as a flashcard, right? So a young Marine who has never seen a P-8 uh, maritime surveillance craft, right, is able to understand, oh, I know what a PA does. It reveals ships, it does ISR for me, and is really effective, but it also needs F-35 escorts because it is a giant Christmas tree in the sky for other enemy IADs, right? So those are the things that they will learn. And you laugh because, like, um, I, you know, I run, I have run over 200 sessions of Littoral Commander, both virtually and in person in the last year and a half of designing this thing. And every time I play with Marines, um, they will play the P8 card because they understand what it is and they know it's good, but they forget that F-35s or some kind of escort is required to make sure this thing doesn't get killed. And then they're always shocked that, that they're a very expensive maritime uh, surveillance craft shot down by enemy jets or IADs. I'm like, well, you should have thought of that, right? But the reason they don't think of it all the time is because they have never been in the task of engaging with the enemy. They draw the maritime surveillance uh, craft on their PowerPoint and no one does anything to it, right? But in a game, those decisions and those sort of holes in your decisions have consequences and it teaches you. And next time they play, they're like, nope, this time we know what's what to expect and we're going to make sure we have uh, fighter escorts with these or we're going to make sure we have cyber defenses because it, it pounded us last time. Or maybe we need to think about how to deal with you know, Chinese DF-21s and have ballistic uh, defense like that, right? And it really builds their knowledge outwards. And, and it's not super deep, right? Uh, it doesn't represent every element of those capabilities super well. Uh, but it gives them a general sense of how these capabilities bring the fight, um, bring to the fight at the tactical level. Yeah, that, that's that's fascinating because one of those, uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm interested to see, you know, once I finally get my copy, uh, <laughs> I'm really interested to see how <laughs> how you mention these these chain reactions of, you know, basically measure countermeasure, counter countermeasure, counter counter countermeasure, right? Um, to see how those play out and how it's not, you know, it's not just rock, paper, scissors. It's, well, I've got a rock. Well, I've got paper. Well, I also have some scissors with my rock. Well, I've also got some rock with my paper and 
kind of see how those those interactions uh, play with one another. And I'm always interested in systems that have uh, imperfect information or limited information, especially when it comes to like uh, targeting uh, the enemy, right? Because that's that's a huge part of it, right? Well, I mean, as as an infantryman, one of the big things we're taught is if they can't see you, hopefully they, they can't shoot you. I mean, yeah, they can just fire blindly and do recon by fire or just throw a bunch of HE your way. But at the end of the day, you know, you can fire blindly into the, into the jungle, but now you've given away your position because you fired blindly into the jungle, right? Yeah, and- absolutely. Uh, I'm a big fan of imperfect information, and this is one of the reasons I use blocks for the original version of Littoral Commander. We're using double-sided counters this time to save on cost of the game, but also um, we it allows us to build a bigger map with smaller pieces. Um, and one of the cool elements about the uncertainty of these kind of games, like the Columbia game, block games, which are like Hammer of the Scots, which I love, and other games like um, Julius Caesar, is that you realize that commanders, even at the tactical level, they are so used to knowing everything that now uncertainty bothers them. And one of the great things about games, especially playing like even imperfect or double blind games, is that it makes them feel or have has them feel more comfortable with uncertainty, right? To make assumptions that are informed by the experience and by doctrine and by um, other you know, TTPs and SOPs of what worked before, right? And that's sort of what we're trying to teach them with these kind of games in many regards. Um, and w- w- to your comment about countermeasures and rock, paper, scissors, yeah, it's sort of exactly that. But also the, the one of the cool, interesting things about the game is that it is not only a question of like, does my rock beat your paper or do I have paper or, or scissors? It is do I want to use my one scissor right now? Or do I want to save it for later, right? It is not only about um, the capability in your hand. Uh, it is also about when do I use it? When do I have to use it? Uh, is this my moment of uh, of opportunity? Or am I wasting a very valuable capability uh, for something that is not important in terms of the sort of tempo of the game, right? And that yeah. is something you have to sort of feel and learn and feel it in your bones, but it is one of my favorite elements of it. And my one advice, uh, I'll give you guys all a preview for um, listening to the game, is that when you play it, it is not only about choosing the right capabilities or choosing the right uh, plan right in the beginning. It is about sequencing, about uh, teamwork, right? Is Can Sebastian and Jay, when they're playing as blue team, uh, as the Marines, be able to coordinate, right? how they use the sequences. Like, for example, I, you know, I tell Jet, hey, I'm going to reveal these units, you're going to prosecute them, and uh, we're going to coordinate our efforts, right? It's about a sequence and coordination between members within teams and having that uh, sort of collective uh, plan to be able to adjust and be on the same page. And the teams that don't do well are the ones who try to win by themselves and sort of try to win uh, one-on-one or try to win in a one-versus-two fight by themselves. It never works out very well for that <laughs> right, person. Right. All right, and that's, and again, that that's that fascinates me that, you know, you, you've got to make these decisions about where you use your resources, not only in coordination with your left and right partners, but also, you know, whether or not you're going to use that asset as part of the main effort or a shaping operation, for example, you know, to, to get a little bit 
little bit higher level than just hey point dangerous thing at bad guy right (laughs) (laughs) yeah absolutely and uh one of my favorite parts is the um planning stage in the game so the game is really broken down to planning deployment action and initiative check uh and most of the game is played in the action stage where you're executing orders and sort of cycles back in these sort of impulses and turns. But in the very beginning of the game and as select turns, you'll go back to the planning stage where you pick cards, right? So each team has this huge deck of cards. Right now, there are about 100 of, of them in each side that sort of represent the PA, the drone, the cyber stuff, all that stuff. And you actively choose your hand, right? Um, but there's a limit. There's a catch. So each card is rated one through five in what we call command points. So, you know, things that are inter-service loans, right, like THAAD, which is a ballistic missile defense that the Marine Corps would have to ask the Army for, right, that is rated a five, right? Uh, offensive cyber operations done by U.S. Cybercom, that is also rated five. So things that are national technical means that are really difficult to execute or get access to as a battalion commander, those are all rated a five. Things that are joint, um, pretty normal to use are usually around two or three. And then things that are organic to the unit or to the Marine Corps are also rated one, two, or three, depending on on what kind of capability it is. So you have to make these trade-off spaces, right? Do I use the P8? That is rated a three. Do I use, you know what I mean, um, a drone that is like a Predator that is rated a two? Or do I even use a cheaper drone, like a a VBAT, which is like a small, you know what I mean, switchblade-looking thing? that is rated a one, right? And each of them will have trace. One may be smaller, but maybe has a smaller, uh, a smaller duration period or persistence. Maybe it has a few, uh, smaller uh, view of visibility and what hexes it reveals, right? Or do I go for the big satellite, right? The low earth orbit satellite that cost me five, right? They sees big chunks of the map, right? Um, and all of them have weaknesses. None of them are, you know what I mean? Um, invincible. The question becomes, what is the right tool for the right moment, the right scenario? Uh, one, uh, uh, a hand of cards that may be really good for, let's say, the Taiwan map, may be really poor for their, let's say, the Singapore Straits of Malacca map, right? And that's sort of what we want to have our players really explore is context-based decision-making, right? And you'll see this great discussion among teams of like, let's say you and I are playing, we're like, well, what should we get? And we'll talk about plans. And we're like, well, if you're going to do that, we need these cyber cards. And then you'll start realizing your allowance of command points is, is dwindling and you, you never get enough, right? You never feel like you have enough command points to get all the cards you want for your plan. So you have to plan in pieces, but also have to plan for adaptability, right? So, you know, you being enlisted as well, you probably understand like your higher command never gives you everything you want, right? So you always have to make some kind of compromises and you'll say, hey, I'll get that thing later. And the question becomes, did you make the right decision about the things you got in the very first beginning and how do you adjust as you go? Right, yeah. That And, and that, that kind of speaks to um, another aspect uh, was, there was a point I was going to make. Um, you know, you've got, you do have these limited resources. Oh yeah. I, I remember now, um, you know, talking about, you know, basically a, a deck building or a draft portion. Right. And uh, like you said, a, a certain, you know, a certain combination of cards might work great in one, in one area, but not so great in another. And so that again, speaks to something. Another thing that we're hitting hard in the uh not 
well in the uh my my mind is is blanking right now of the proper term yeah, no but, worries <laughs> um the the you know we're we're big on training the understanding and analysis of the operational environment right and the operational environment in you know, one part of Afghanistan, for example, is going to be completely different than another part. And even within a particular province, it's going to be, you know, the operational environment is going to be different. So being able to teach that piece also, along with the, you know, making sure you're using the right tool at the right time at the right place is, you know, or not even just the right tool, it's the right combination of tools. That just sounds like, man, you're, you're hitting you're hitting everything right. It sounds like. And, um, <laughs> well, I'm I will say that, that it's not getting picked up by, by. Uh, oh, I hope it eventually gets picked up by a wider honor audience for sure. Because this sounds exactly like the type of thing that I would want in in a PME type type environment. Yeah. So when I was designing this game, I will say that it is not a perfect game in the sense that it makes certain compromises, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for example, like we, we exclude um, battle damage assessment mainly because we made the game too complicated. So we made certain cuts um, when uh, my myself and the team that I was working with at the time, when we were making the initial design of like what to include and what we uh, don't include. And we always went back to the, our core principle was that we want this game to be for enlisted and uh, you know, essentially... Um, lieutenants captains and majors right for them to run it for their own units at the line companies or in the commands and in the units or for the staff right and if we're like hey we want it to be accessible and uh have enough of the technical uh and analytical vigor but also not give up too much of the accessibility and playability and it was a careful sort of precarious balance we had to do but you know i think we hit a sweet spot personally and I'm really proud of the game system and how much work uh, has gone into it and from all the way from the research to the play testing we've done. Um, but at the fundamental level, it is about sections and it's about platoons and about uh, companies making decisions. And often players represent roughly like a battalion minus or company plus of formations, right? Depending on the scenario. And it's really about like, what do you do, right? It's like the old TDGs, right? The tactical decision games of like, what do we do now, Lieutenant? Like we have missiles coming in from XYZ, right? Do we reveal our IADs or not, right? Do we use our cyber attack right now? Do we use EMS jamming, right? Or like, what now, Lieutenant? We didn't get your EMS defense, so we're being jammed, right? What do we do, right? Or we can't do anything, right? And it's really about those small tactical level engagements and those interactive dynamic engagements between two or three or four players that are trying to impose their will upon each other. And and it largely scopes out a lot of the operational questions. Like when you play an F-35 card in my game, right, to do combat air patrols, as a player, you do not care how it got to you. All you know is that somebody above you got you F-35s and is on the map over Luzon or the Philipp- uh, or um, the Straits of Malacca or Taiwan. You don't care how it got there, right? Um, you only care that you got it there and it is on time, right? Um, and that is a purposeful scoping of the game because we wanted to keep it tactical, right? To have those sort of tactical decision makings that are relevant to captains and lieutenants and majors 
um, and their enlisted cohorts, right? I wanted a game essentially for old Sergeant Bay back in the day, right? Where he could play mm-hmm. with his Marine buddies in the barracks, but also in the drill hall. Yeah, and that's that's definitely it definitely sounds like it for sure. Now, fast forward to, I guess, what was it, just about a month ago, wasn't it, when you made the announcement that the Dietz Foundation was was picking up then FMF, and then you had to change it to literal commander because someone's got to be a stick in the mud. And <laughs> how how did that process go? How did that work? Did, did you seek out the Dietz Foundation or maybe a combination of you seeking each other out? What, what was that process like? Um, so like other you know, commercial designers, and this is my first time you're know, commercially publishing a game uh, for the mass market. So it was a bit of a learning curve for me. And I will say this, that I had great mentors and great guides to help me make introductions and connections like uh, Harry Buchanan and Volker Rohingya and like so many others. Uh, were able to give me advice on how to pitch my game, how to refine it as a commercial product from a purely uh, professional military education tool and so forth. So first of all, that was great. Um, and you know what I mean? I made the rounds. I went to the usual suspects who I thought um, or uh, who I thought would be interested in the game. And there were talks and some some fizzled out. Um, some, some of it was complicated by the pandemic. Um, and so forth. Some were just already had a full catalog. And eventually, Jim was one of the people that was really interested. And in the end, I ended up going with the Dietz Foundation because of their educational focus. They're not your normal, like, you're in publisher, right? Not to say you're, uh, your commercial publishers are bad. I love many of them, right? But for me, when I was designing Littoral Commander, I wanted the education aspect of it to still be at the heart of it, even if for a commercial version, I still wanted it to be marketable and accessible to hobby gamers. But at the same time, I still wanted to be used in units in line companies. Um, so I wanted to find a publisher that agreed with that vision. And Jim was one of those people that really was committed to that, um, that vision of mine. And he has been a great uh, publisher. He has been, um, helpful in my rules edits right now. and has been patient when my day job has gotten in the way of my littoral commander edits. Sorry, Jim. All right, I know I owe you many things this week. Uh, I promise I get to them this weekend. <laughs> but you know, what I mean, that was sort of uh, sort of agreement and it accelerated really quickly. And right now, like for example, um, we're re- we're creating new graphics for the cards and new card designs, but also sort of like slicing and dicing the rule set of like, hey, we have this great system, but how do we uh, translate it to be more accessible for people, right? Do we move these things around, right? Are there guides and playthroughs that we can add to the rule book to make it easier, right, for people to learn when I'm not there sitting in the room with them, right? So there, he's been great in that regard. Uh, but at the heart of it, it was about, do I find a publisher who shares the vision for this game, which is about it providing an educational tool, not just a commercial entertainment uh, game? Yeah, that's, you know, you, I've, I've talked to plenty of game developers before and, you know, that I, I will say this, the, the board game development uh, kind of path, there, there really seems to be an interest with, within the developer community to help each other out. And, and that's one thing I, I certainly appreciate that the, that the hobby is able to bring out in people. 
And I certainly appreciate that going with the Dietz Foundation like you have and with their focus on the educational aspects of games, like it's kind of hard to argue against that, right? So, you know, it's I'm really pleased to see that, it's, that it is going to be getting out to a wider audience. Um, now, not just the nuts and bolts of, you know, the, you know, the behind the curtain look at, you know, how the sausage is made, so to speak. Um, there's still, I mean, there's quite a bit of work just in getting the box designed and, and all that stuff, but. Oh, yes. When, so, <laughs> Which I owe Jim a lot. <laughs> yeah. So at some point, somebody set, decided that there was a dollar amount that needed to raise for this thing to, to see the light of day. And you, you've surpassed that. Um, now, how? let me see if I can pull that up real quick because you were, let's see. So I think the original amount was like 20K was the goal. Um, and we did end up surpassing it. Um, the The original pledge page, I think, was down to 15 or 16 because we had to change the name halfway through the pledge. So we had to start like a new one technically. So, but the original pledge was, I think 20 K and that was based on the quotes uh, for the game pieces um, and sort of the, the redesign of many of the graphic elements because they were, we wanted to recreate the cards, um, recreate some of the map elements as well and have a graphic designer. And Jim and I share a very strong view that people, especially creative portions like uh, the artists and so forth, should be credited and paid well for their contribution uh, to game design. So that's sort of sort of all rolled into one. And Jim has been great in handling the administrata of it. I always tell him I'm allergic to paperwork. Um, but yeah, it's been a, it's been an interesting ride, to be honest. Now, that is... I guess it's technically in pre-order now. Looking at the link, it's it's past the the pledge portion. It's just straight up pre-order. So, what does my seventy bucks get? A really cool game. <laughs> um, no, so seriously. Um, so, in the game right now, we are aiming for about two or three maps. Uh, looking at, so my hope is to get the Straits of Malacca, Taiwan, and Luzon into the map, which are paper maps, um, because mainly because they're, they'll be quite big. They won't be mounted, uh, but they will have counters, double-sided counters that are, are, would replace the, the wooden Columbia blocks uh, in the original prototype, uh, which are getting all redesigned as well. You'll get about 200 cards. Uh, 100 cards roughly each for each side that have different capabilities like we've been discussing. Um, and then we are creating new unit trackers. So um, <laughs> in the old PME version, we had like Excel sheets um, that were printed out and you would hand track them. Uh, and one of the cool things that I wanted to do is to have a more like gamey commercial feel. So you'll each unit will have like a sort of a index card that has tracks the supply using different wooden bits. Uh, we'll have all these little other wooden bits like wooden submarines and um, and planes and uh, bobbles and bits to track different statuses of units and so forth. Um, and what else am I missing? Um, but you know what I mean? That's sort of what we're aiming for, right? And we'll have about, I'm aiming for about three to five scenarios for the base map. And my hope is at least is that when people get the game and learn how to play the game and have a couple iterations that it will be like digital games, like where 
uh, like StarCraft or Age of Empires or uh, Command PE, right, where people start building their scenarios. And me and Jim are discussing um, where best to host all that information so people can create mm-hmm. their own scenarios. Let's say you create a scenario using Littoral Commander for your National Guard unit, right? Well, I want you to be able to share that, right? Be like, hey, we use these units and we created this story. I want to share it with Sebastian over there, um, over at 3MEF or wherever, right? And we want to, to yeah. build those things and our hope, my hope is depending on the success of the Littoral Commander Indo-Pacific uh, installation of the first module is that it will be built out as a series. I'm already re- working on the Russian version of the game where it will expand into the European theater and look at um, you know, I mean, how the Marine Corps will contribute in that theater uh, in the future. Uh, which will bring all sorts of different things like the Dana Straits, the Baltics, or even considering the Black Sea um, as one, or even a high north map, right? And the idea is that you you sort of build out the scenario. So like, it's not just me thinking of scenarios, right? But hopefully guiding other people to learn how to make their own scenarios and add, add it to their own use. Because one of the best parts about even of the 90 or so prototypes I've sent out to Marine Corps units and other uh, military commands, both uh, in the Army and Air Force and so forth, was um, they would come back with feedback. You're like, hey, what about these cards? Right? Or uh, I, re- I explicitly remember um, uh, Engineer Support Battalion essentially saying, hey, like we do more than uh, demining, right? Um, and that's part of my bias as being an infantry guy, because I think of EOD and the, uh, engineers as just like the guys who get rid of IEDs for me, um, right, colored right. by my experience in Iraq, but they're like, yeah, we do expeditionary repairs. We do obstacle creation, all this stuff. And they get, and after they played the game, so they actually emailed me a bunch of cards that they wanted in the game. Right. And they're like, we wanted to have these effects, right. We are like, it will increase mobility in a, in a single hex. Right. And sort of like that. And it was great because we were able to discuss their expertise and my system and they came up with more. And the hope is that uh, people will do the same thing with cards and hopefully expand those things and add new technologies as we uh, research them and they become more available, but also share scenarios. Yeah. I mean, that all sounds great. And, you know, eventually I would imagine that that'll just continue to expand. And, and I really like the idea of having, you know, user created content and maybe not in an official capacity, but certainly, you know, additional resources for folks who do want to expand, you know, away from, you know, the, the initial, you know, well, let's face it, coastal, coastal aspect of, yeah. of what you're, what you're doing, you know, cause you know, a lot of times we fight pretty far away from water, you know, <laughs> my, my experience oh, in Afghanistan no. taught me that, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, yes, absolutely. So, and the other question is like, um, what if there are va- or like you know, variants to scenarios? Like for example, even the base scenario, which I call Luzon Pass, which is a, you know I mean? Sort of goalkeeping scenario where the blue side is trying to stop the red Navy from passing a certain point on the map, right? Mm-hmm. Essentially escaping the first island chain on the Philippine map, right? But there are variants even now that I use with the current prototype, which is, okay, what happens if blue has ships, right? And what if it just has all ground units, right? How does that affect your scenario? The scenario is roughly the same, but your order of battle, the the units you have available, right, are different. 
What about the mm-hmm. uh, uh, the red side for the Chinese, right? What happens if you're all naval units, or what if you have submarines? What if you uh, what if you have a ground element? How does that affect your decision space as a team? Uh, even though the largely in terms of the scenario itself is the same, and let me tell you, it changes huge dynamics, right? Um, for either side, and it's it's fascinating how the sort of same sort of tactical scenario uh, can be so largely impacted by the number of command points that you have, the number of players you have, the type of units you've been assigned in a particular uh, setting. And that's really the real fun of the game, I think, is to toy around right. with all those things. Right. Now, when when we are talking about those variables, I mean, you're still, you're still going to be using a, a single block or a single chit as a certain sized unit. I mean, you're not looking to to bathtub it, to use a wargaming term, and, and make a larger unit all of a sudden smaller or, you know, go the other way, right? So a block isn't all of a sudden going to turn into what used to be a, a section or a platoon is all of a sudden going to be a, a company or even larger, uh, uh, I would guess, right? No, yeah, no. So I started with small units. So most of the units are sections uh, representing two or three launchers, right? So like a Heimar section or a platoon of infantry or either motorized or lightly armored um, or mechanized, depending. And there are only a few exceptions to that, which are like the individual ships themselves for the Navy units. And then some of the blue logistics units are company size, mainly because uh, logistics tends to have a bigger footprint and you're you're not having sections of or even platoons of logistics often. Um, so that was a exception. And one of the reasons we had we started with small ones is that a stack, right? Like if you stack enough platoons, right, you'll have your combat mass for a company, right? And mm-hmm. that's sort of the flexibility we wanted. We wanted you to decide if you want to put a bunch of units together for lethality and easy movement, right? Or did you want to spread them out, but makes it harder to coordinate with those units? Because as sure. a player, uh, you only have so many actions you can do. You can only activate so many units or essentially hexes, right? So do I activate one unit in one hex or do I activate this whole stack of units in a hex, right? But there are trade-offs, right? If you have a bunch of units, let's say uh, a company's worth of infantry, that's great. That means you can move a company pretty efficiently down the road or to do some kind of company assault. But at the same time, that means a predator drone sees all, the entire company because you know, it sees by hexes, right? So there's right. this trade-off, right, of distribution and lethality, of combat mass and concentration versus survivability, right? Um, and that is something that we wanted our players to grapple with, right, um, to really deal with that notion. Um, and it is something that is a central core theme of the game. Yeah, and again, that's, you know, not only can, you know, not only can that sensor, whatever it is, can see that entire unit, but now if, you know, if the enemy wants to, you know, throw some warnings that way, that's going to be a high, that's going to be a high payoff, right? Oh, yeah, so, absolutely. So you, you you definitely have to balance that. And that, I mean, that's a classic wargaming dilemma, but... You you actually give the the player the choice, and there there are advantages and there are disadvantages to to the to every decision, right? So yeah, I like that 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 is that that's included. Um, roughly, how big is a hex? 
So each hex is about 20 kilometers wide, which means it's roughly okay. 260 kilometers square area. It's actually quite large for platoons and sections to be operating in. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the reasons we did this was because originally when I did it to be like two kilometers, which is very you know, typical for like tactical games, or especially at the sort of modern era, uh, it was it was silly because every weapon hit everything, right? There was mm -hmm. no range differential. So like, for example, a naval strike missile, which has over 280 kilometers of area uh, of range, um, it can hit everything on a map, right? So mm -hmm. how does that differ from, let's say, the new army program, which is called PRISM, precision strike missile that the Marine Corps is also trying to work on with uh, to extend and replace attackums on um uh, multiple launch rocket systems and HIMARS. Mm -hmm. Well, that one can reach out to 500 kilometers. Okay, well, what about Tomahawk missiles, which can reach out about 1,200 um, um, kilometers? So we wanted to have a big enough area where those kind of differentials in range matter, uh, whether it is uh, M777 artillery piece, or if it is uh, a Gimler's right, that has 80 kilometers or Iron Dome, which is an IS system, has about 80 kilometers of range and have these kind of uh, tension points, right? Uh, and the idea of distribution of how much do you want to distribute, right? Uh, how much do you want to concentrate, right? These are all things that are very important, especially when you have a lot of lethality at range. And I think that is an uncomfortable concept for a lot of um uh, enlisted and officers is that there is almost no safe spot on the map, right? Mm -hmm. There is very few places where you are truly out of range of, uh, of the enemy's capabilities one way or another, because guess what? They can touch you anywhere in cyberspace. They can touch you with ballistic missiles. They can touch you with cruise missiles, right? So the question becomes, right? How do I survive within what we call them in the Marine Corps terms, the weapons engagement zone, right? The WES, right? Because you're going to live and breathe in the WES and you're in dangers around every corner. And the question becomes, how do I mitigate those? How do I manage those? Because the mm -hmm. risk is not going away. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, yeah, the, there, there is no safe space anymore. Right. And that's uh, something that, you know, you and I both learned in our own ways in, in different countries, but a pretty similar time frame. you know, there, there is no, there is no rear anymore. Right. Oh and, yeah. Um, you definitely realize now, that. Yeah. And especially now with, you know, they're talking about orbital, you know, orbital weapons delivery or, you know, scramjet enabled missiles that, you know, that are truly intercontinental. Right. And they're not ballistic. They're, you know, they're, they're under power the entire, for the entirety of their flight. Right. And yeah, it's, it's definitely, it, it definitely makes you think or should be making you think at the tactical level, you know, how do I, you know, how do I keep from being seen and how do I, you know, keep from not, <laughs> not running my radios all the time and so that I'm not seen electronically, but also, you know, how do I keep in touch with my higher command? Because they're screaming for more information about what's going on where I am, but I don't want to, you know, be, <laughs> be blaring a radio signal 24 seven. And I, I definitely think there's, there's some interesting, uh, there's some interesting questions to ponder. And I, and I'm glad that you have, come up with a tool that helps us ask some of those questions and kind of discuss some of those ramifications without, you know, 
necessarily having to spend a bunch of money on either a computerized system or get a bunch of people out in the field and all the problems that that creates, right? So what I say is there's no substitution for experience, right? There's no substitution right. for being on deployment or you know, being in, I mean, part of my French is like being in the shit, right? There's no replacement for that, right? Uh, but at the same time, there's an inc- immense value for iteration, right? Right. Um, to be able to fail and learn and fail and learn and also learn from other successes, right? And I think that's what where games really shine is that iterative experiential learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and my hope is that during this game and others um, will hopefully drive more of that in the military at the tactical level, at the operational level, and hopefully also at the strategic level. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's really what it comes down to with this type of training tool is, you know, to to use the often overused, well, now cliche sets and reps, right? Um, getting those chances to try and again, being able to alter the scenario and getting those chances to go through a scenario with different conditions, right? And, and, and changing the, you know, your your mission analysis as you go based on what you have available and what the enemy is bringing, bringing to the fight as well. And, and, you know, if you can achieve, if you can achieve four or five repetitions over the course of a, of a drill weekend, for example, for reservists and guardsmen, you know, that's great. And, and again, it's one of those things where what I like about using, uh, you know, just a pen and paper tabletop, game like this is as the person running the game, it's a heck of a lot easier for me to change stuff than if I'm using a computerized system, right? Cause I, I'm not a programmer, <laughs> you know, but I can take a look at the box of chits that's available and I can, you know, maybe add a couple more chits or take a couple chits out or move a couple of cards around in this, in the selection process, or maybe limit the cards that are available and I can completely change the scenario to something that's a little bit more challenging or a little bit easier for, for my training audience. And I think that's, that's a great capability that tabletop games provide also. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm really excited to get this out into more people's hands and get their feedback, right. To, so hopefully later iterations of uh, the fleet uh, or uh, of the littoral commander series will build upon right as mm-hmm. a, as the system itself and the rules itself refine further and evolve and adapt to different contexts right because it won't be a you know a copy and paste it'll be a evolution over the series yeah and yeah i'm looking forward to i'm definitely looking forward to what the future of literal commander brings and if that's going to be new expansions or completely new core sets set in different theaters. I think that's cool too. And you know, how, however it goes. Um, so 70 bucks at the Deets foundation, again, link direct to literal commander will be in the show notes. Um, I think shipping was like 15 bucks or something like that, which actually in today's, in, in today's environment, that's actually pretty good. Um, no complaints there. Um, do you have kind of like a timeline for publication or kind of like some soft goals or even hard, hard deadlines or. 
Yeah, so my soft goal is to get pe get it out to people by Christmas, right? That's Okay. just my soft goal. Jim is more realistic. He's like probably in the spring slash like early, uh, like near January, uh, February time frame in 2023. Um, I am trying to you know, rush myself, uh, not rush, but try to propel myself to you know devote a lot more time to it. Uh, as much as I can, because I'm also excited, right? I want the game out. I want people to play it. I want to be, um, get people's feedback. And you know what I mean, it won't not, it won't please everybody, but my hope is that it will please enough people to move the needle, right? That Right. other people will design games for units in training and education, because I don't think we do enough of it. I don't think we have enough, uh, tools in, in the, your PME tool set in terms of experiential learning. And I'm, my hope is that this will inspire other people to use games, also design their own games for their own purposes, or adjust my game, right? Like make your homebrew rules and adjust the game system as you see fit, maybe that you want to add a BDA rule into it and so forth. But yeah, that's my hope. Yeah, great. Well, I am I am certainly looking forward to getting my copy. I'm definitely, definitely, definitely looking forward to getting my copy in front of my company. Uh, the very least, the leadership, right? And and probably some other games uh, before then. So um, now I have to ask real quick, um, is, is there something that you're wanting to work? Is there something that you're wanting to work on and just haven't been able to get get to it yet or is are are your eyes just so firmly focused on getting literal commander or lc out that you haven't even thought about something else um as a designer i always have like a bunch of things i literally have a notebook which i call my half-baked book uh which is just half-baked ideas that i have on the shower walking my dog i mean just random thoughts that pop into my head Um, I would like to say that Littoral Commander is getting all my attention, uh, and hopefully Jim won't listen to this, but it's not. Um, I am designing two other games at the same time, uh, one with a group of students that I work with, which is on malign influence and sort of disinformation and sort of uh, how to build resiliency in societies. Uh, that is sort of sucking a little bit of my time. Uh, another portion, another game that I'm really excited about, which hopefully in the next couple months, maybe in the probably Christmas, hopefully, um, we'll have a working prototype that we can sort of, you know, trot out in front of people, which is called Kill Chain at the moment. And I'm working on it with uh, a colleague of mine and great designer at the Naval War College called Pete Pellegrino. And it is um, sort of similar to Littoral Commander, but it is uh, envisioned as purely a card game. It has a little more granularity Uh, and detailed than Littoral Commander does in the sensor to shooter chain, but it's really a card-based game that sort of is building out a, a, a series of capabilities via cards that sort of match and link up to each other um, so you can complete a kill chain, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and it's supposed to be really rapid play. It's really designed that you can fit in your cargo pocket or if you're on a ship to be able to play it in the wardroom with your enlisted sailors or with your naval officers and your peers. Mm -hmm. So that's a game. We literally had a game design meeting uh, like a week or two ago that I'm really excited about. Um, Cool. and Pete is such an absolute great designer. And of course I, even on top of those two other games that I'm designing and doing littoral commander, uh, the Russian expansion to this game, to the littoral commander series is also on my mind, especially with, uh, mm. recent world events. Right. Sure. Um, and another thing for the, uh, sort of littoral commander series that I'm really keen about is, um, sort of my eye on the future is to have allies and partners and other nations and their uh, forces 
included in the game. I was just having a conversation with a colleague of mine in the UK and how we can potentially partner with the Royal Marines and look at their concepts of littoral rating and other concepts as well and see what technologies they're pursuing and included and see, hey, how do we fight in a coalition environment? How do we, yeah. uh, how would the the British fight in the Danish Straits or whatever? And really serve as, you know, a sandbox for, for both coalition, but also, you know, national forces. Um, mm. Because I would love to have, like, you know, uh, the Japanese Navy involved or the Australians or uh, the British uh, components as well to be involved because, you know, I mean, that's a big portion of um, our strategy abroad. And I think that's a really cool idea. And also the idea is like you'll get more familiar with these things, right? So you know what uh, a British frigate does and or a Corvette does as well. Yeah, I, that all sounds great. And uh, I'm, I'm definitely someone who is you know, trying to feverishly work on my own projects, but I've, you know, I've got, you know, Hey, I've got some other ideas in the back of my mind. And <laughs> if you, if you can stay focused on LC, like it, like you have over the last two years, like, Hey, more power to you. And <laughs> so my one advice is to have people who will impose deadlines on you, um, <laughs> whether that is Jim um, or it is, um, you know, I mean, one of the great things about having it out into the units, even when it was, pretty raw in its form was that um, the units provided a huge demand signal. They're like, mm-hmm. hey, let's run sessions. Hey, let's, can you do this on Basel? Can you do this on Tabletop Simulator? Can you uh, come down to our unit and run it for us, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, can you teach these people via Zoom? And those kind of demand signals really propelled me to do it. Um, also, other designers uh, help me keep accountable. So I will keep you accountable, Jay. So whatever game design you're, you are noodling with, I will bust your, uh, bust your chops about it and be like, Hey Jay, uh, how's your game coming along? Because sometimes, uh, shame is exactly what you need to propel someone forward. No, Hey, that's great. My, my brother and I are, are working on a, a miniatures project in, in a cyberpunk setting. And we're, we're using, uh, Fistful of Lead from Wiley Games as our as our rules of choice, but uh, uh, Galactic Heroes is the science fiction variant, right? But uh, they don't really have any... There's some things missing that would really help sell as, as a, for a cyberpunk setting, right? So some particular aspects. And so something that we're working on is not just the miniatures and the terrain, like I've, you know, like I've been posting on Twitter, but also, you know, some, some game elements that are, that are going to make it more of a cyber cyberpunk feel rather than just generic sci-fi or generic near future. Right. So oh, yeah, yeah feel absolutely. free. Feel free. So yeah, we're, we've got <laughs> I will first definitely game. harangue you now on Twitter and be like, Hey, how's your cyberpunk game going? Absolutely. Um, and I'll, add a colorful gif in there for you yeah please do hashtag kanji city that's the name of our setting is kanji city and uh yeah please do i that's i need it so <laughs> no our, yeah, our first I think that's is- the great thing about about having like peer designers uh not only provide you great guidance and mentorship and like you know I mean insight um and advice but also to provide sometimes just the impetus right to be mm-hmm. like hey you got to meet this deadline or hey like you should bring it to this convention which you know i mean is a deadline in itself right to yeah, have yeah, something yeah. ready and printed and cut um and a lot of that was uh, a big 
factor of how the total commander came to be right we had lots of people uh rooting for us um and you know, also providing deadlines right uh, in that regard, the Krulak Center down at the Marine Corps University, they were great partners, absolutely amazing partners in mm-hmm. how and uh, helping us uh, find players, helping us provide uh, meet with expertise and really providing us great feedback. And I cannot speak uh, enough good words about uh, Brigadier General Valerie Jackson, who is the director of the Krulak Center and Major Ian Brown and Jerry Cooper who were uh, really instrumental in making this come true for um, PME. Yeah, that's, that, I'm, I'm just pleased as punch for you. And uh, I've, I've kind of tracked, kind of watched things as they've developed. And it's 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 got to be so gratifying, gratifying on your part. And I'm, I'm certainly certainly going to be pleased to, to see that box uh, land with a thud on my doorstep. So... Uh, Sebastian, I think that's a great place to wrap up. Um, I really appreciate you taking your time. And we, we both has, had some dog-related incidents that delayed our, our recording just a touch. Uh, our dog Mando got out, and then I said, hey, we're back. We're, we're ready to go. And I'm walking my dog. So that's, you know, anybody that owns a dog can't be all bad. So uh, Yeah, absolutely. So I, I appreciate you taking the time to, to talk. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking again in the near future uh, well, relatively speaking, the near future. Once maybe like one is ready to ready to uh, uh, ship, we'll have you on again and kind of remind folks that hey, you're going to be getting this on the <laughs> on your doorstep. Here, here's what to look for, and uh, just kind of touch base, touch base at that time, and see how things have have progressed. So, any yeah, absolutely any, any final thoughts before we. Uh, before we uh, wrap up, uh, play games um, to help help each other learn. That's sort of my you know, I mean, soapbox issue, and I think that's uh, my parting message, right? And you know I mean, go pre-order Littoral Commander. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Again, show the show notes. We'll have a link, uh, direct link to the Literal Commander page, where you can just add to cart and go ahead and throw your money, throw your money at the Deets Foundation and. Uh, let's let's get those those copies out there, uh, Sebastian. Thank you very much again for taking the time to to talk to me on on your baby, and uh, I am I'm certainly looking forward to to seeing it out there. Yeah, I'm more than happy to. Uh, really, you you sort of drew me in with two of my favorite topics, which is my game, Lutol Commander, but also uh, using games for education, which is a huge you know, passion, close and dear to my heart. Yeah, it's it's really. And, and when you can get people learning without realizing they're learning, you know, that's, <laughs> that's even better, right? Yeah, absolutely. I always tell my students, I'm like, and you know, I always tell my colleagues about the students is like, don't tell them they're learning, right? Just let them enjoy it. Right. Mm-hmm. So lean into it. Right. Right. I was uh, talking to one of the teachers that, uh, that my wife teaches with, and he was, he's a history teacher. And he was talking about using risk as a way of kind of teaching a little bit about uh, some of the issues that the, the nations, you know, the the nations of Europe experienced before World War One. I. I kind of dropped a little bit about, yeah, have you ever have you heard of a game called Diplomacy? And he and he hadn't, and so I, I might uh, I might show him what diplomacy is like, and then I got to remember that. <laughs> 
He just works make with him my Austria. Wife, so. <laughs> just so. give him Austria. It'll be fine. You know what I mean? Be like, hey, don't worry. Just take a very passive approach. Yeah. Uh, you'll be okay. Also, if, Russia's your friend. <laughs> yeah. If I really didn't like him, I'd give him Turkey, right? <laughs> oh, Turkey. Oh, poor Turkey, right? <laughs> the sick man of Europe. Um, uh, yeah, which is a, such a fascinating, uh, interesting thing because this is why when we play diplomacy among my friends, we have to draw uh, like random draw uh, countries. Otherwise, mm-hmm. no one. We all get in a fight of who's going to be Turkey, right? right. <laughs> uh, or Austria, right? Everyone's like, I want to be France or the UK or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it and do do feel free to harass me on, on Twitter about uh, the progress of Kanji City. So. Oh, yeah, Kanji <laughs> City. I'm going to remember it. Yeah, no worries. And I don't uh, close this tab as you stop it, right? No, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll let you know when we're clear. All right, so, cool. Um, on that note... As always, if the war game you're having isn't any fun, you make it fun. That is all. The Veteran Wargamer is copyright J. Arnold, 2022. Music courtesy of freemusicarchive.org.